Hello, welcome to Highbrow. My name is Mina, I'm your host, and we're back. I'm also back in New York City because I was in Orange County um, in LA for the past week and a half celebrating my dad and my grandpa's birthdays. They are Leo's and their birthdays are two days apart, so I thought it was a good time to go visit. While I was in California, I did get to try an Air One smoothie, which, you know, now I feel like I can fully have an opinion on it because I did an episode where I talked about Air One, but it was all like conjecture, right? Like I was reading accounts of Air One. I was watching TikToks of people who bought things from Air One and were reviewing things from Air One, but I had never had a firsthand experience at Air One until last week. And honestly, like, I do get it. I understand why people like it because it's, like, a nice little bougie grocery store and um, everyone in there – well, actually, I went to the Beverly Hills location and everyone in there was, like, you know, dressed to impress, not necessarily the type of people who would go PJs to the grocery store, like the majority of us, but there were also a lot of tourists there, so maybe – Everyone there was actually just a tourist, and the actual Air One customer has still eluded me. And before any of you ask, like, how could you know they were tourists? It's because people were taking photos everywhere. It was so funny. Like, we're in a grocery store, and there were people taking photos in the bathroom and taking photos just, like, in the aisles. It was an interesting time. The smoothie itself, I got the Hailey Bieber smoothie. It was uh, one overpriced. I think it was like $17. And on top of that, it was just like very average. It was a little bit too sweet in my opinion. Like I don't really like sweet drinks. Like I'm not a Starbucks girly. I'm not pumping syrups into my coffees or drinks. I'm not one of those like artificial water girls. (laughs) So I have like a pretty low sweet tolerance to begin with. So maybe someone else would really like the Air One smoothie, but I was just sort of like, um, there's like syrups in here and I thought this was supposed to be like a super, super healthy option. And then, I don't know, it was just like kind of generically strawberry. I feel like I could have had a strawberry smoothie somewhere else and I wouldn't really know the difference. Yeah, I don't know. I think it's just like overpriced. It definitely is a hype product. I guess it's fun conceptually to be like, oh my god, I'm going to order a Hailey Bieber smoothie today. But other than that, I don't know. I would rather spend $16 on like two really good $8 smoothies. (laughs) So some fashion news. Well, actually, I have some fashion tea because there is a specific brand and, you know, I don't like to name names because I'm forever afraid of lawsuits. And uh, yeah, I just like, I don't want to be in that mess. So I will not be naming a name again. But there's like this brand that really markets itself on being super, super sustainable. And they sent me a PR package, which, okay, from that sentence, fine. But I didn't order this PR package. And they actually tried to reach out to me and I didn't give them my contact. So I don't know, like I didn't reply to the email asking for my information. So I don't know how they still got my information. But the reason I didn't want a PR package from them is because I didn't like anything in the little gifting suite. So when you are a content creator or an influencer and brands want to reach out to you to gift you things, they usually have a pamphlet of items that you can choose from. So it's not usually like you can pick anything from the store that they'll send to you. Sometimes they'll do that very rarely. And I find... So I was looking through this pamphlet and I was like, I don't like anything. And I'm someone who doesn't like to accumulate anything that I don't personally love, especially when it comes to clothing, because one, I have limited real estate in my closet. And two, it just like makes me very icky to like see something that I don't want to wear just sitting in my closet. I don't know. I feel very gross about that. So I didn't want anything. I didn't answer. Lo and behold, I come back from my vacation in California and there's a package from them. I don't know how they got my information. I opened the package just to like see what they sent me and I didn't like any of it. No surprise there because I didn't like anything in the pamphlet. Not only that, all the clothes were not my size. Like they sent me a pair of shoes that were size nine and I'm a size six and a half to seven. So it's kind of like, 
why would you just randomly send me things? Like shoes especially, they're so specific that I don't think you can guess what my shoe size is just from like looking at photos of my Instagram. Like I think you can probably guess my size of clothing from looking, but they were still wrong. Like everything was just wrong. And I was like, this is so unsustainable actually for you to be sending products that don't fit people. Like you're just guessing the size and shipping them off. And the reason it's unsustainable is because one, like there's an environmental cost to things being shipped around. And then on top of that, like I returned them. I just returned them today actually. And you know, that is another environmental cost of shipping this back to their warehouse. But on top of that, there's like tons of people who probably are too lazy to ship things back. And if this is like your business model, your marketing model, then they're probably just going to like have the clothes sitting in their closets or they're going to throw them out or they're going to donate them. But I use donate in quotation marks, which you can't see because I'm speaking, but I'm air quoting donation, right? Because if you don't know, um, a lot of the times when you donate things, it actually just goes to the landfill because companies like Goodwill and Salvation Army, they get so many donations per day. It's just impossible to sell everything on their storefronts. And so uh, the things that like don't sell, they'll go to like the bins. Um, If you've been to the Goodwill bins, it's a scary place. It's kind of fun in the sense that you can find some really cool things. Okay, let me just explain the pipeline and then I'll get back to the bins. Um, And then I'll go to the bins and if, you know, no one picks it up for the bins, then it just like gets shipped off to like countries in Africa um, where it piles along their landfills and just creates like like a little environmental disaster in these countries. But, you know, we all like live on the same earth, so it does cause issues for everyone at the end of the day. So this is like not very sustainable. That's all I'm saying. So I think it's just funny that this brand is all about like we are so eco-conscious and then they do things like this without a second thought. I'm like, who is in charge exactly? But yeah, back to the Goodwill bins because I went to the Goodwill bins back in 2019. So this was pre-pandemic and I went with a friend who is now a stylist, but she was like always like super into the whole hunt of clothing. I'm a little less so. I personally like to work with people who do the hunt for me so you know sometimes my friend will like send me clothes uh, from online stores that she thinks like I really like but over the years I've accumulated some friends in the vintage scene I've gone to a lot of vintage shows and so like befriended some people and they'll also like let me do private shopping appointments or they'll like send me items that they've acquired that they think I would like. It's it's really nice. And so, yeah, I'm not like someone who I think can really sift through bullshit anymore, mostly because also a lot of the stuff I like tends to be older and it's just really hard now to find vintage clothing in thrift stores because Ugh, this is like just a whole another conversation about the Depop girlies and the and the popularity of thrifting and fast fashion taking over. I'm sorry, I'm going on like so many different tangents and I cannot finish one thought. But basically thrifting nowadays, it's so much harder to find gems than it used to be because this is actually the smaller problem that a lot of people like to shift the entire blame on. But you have like these Depop sellers who go into thrift stores and they just bulk buy like so many clothes. They like clear out all the best selection at the beginning of the day. And yeah, so whatever's left is like not really much. And a lot of people like hate on them. I honestly don't really feel a certain strong reaction towards them. Like I think it's wrong to be taking uh, like, you know, plus size clothing and then upcycling them to fit like an XS that's really bullshit and I think that um upcharging a two dollar shirt to like forty dollars is also a little ethically rancid but at the end of the day like these thrift stores do get so many clothes and if they don't get sold then they get shipped off to those countries that I was talking about where they just like pile on and ruin the environment there and ruin also like the the business ecosystem and everything. So it's way worse for these clothes to not get sold within the locales that they're being sold. But, you know, that does contribute to a smaller selection of 
you know, designer and true vintage clothing in these thrift stores. The other reason that thrift stores just don't have as much good stuff anymore is because people are not giving good stuff. So a lot of these platforms that are available like Depop, but also Poshmark and The Real Real and Vestier and all these like more designery platforms where people can easily sell onto them and make more money than if they just donated their clothes. That's also a contributing factor to why we don't really see that many good clothes in thrift stores anymore because it's like if you bought a Gucci shirt for a thousand dollars and you don't like it anymore you could donate it and get like no money or you could list it on Depop and probably get like eight hundred dollars so more people are kind of going into that option because of these online marketplaces that have propped up in the last couple years but then also and I think this is actually like the biggest reason I think that fast fashion has just taken over so much that people don't have good things to donate anymore to these stores. A lot of sellers have been talking about how they have to comb through so much Shein and so much Fashion Nova in a thrift store that didn't exist before because, you know, people didn't used to shop ultra fast fashion. I mean, you would always find some fast fashion, like you would always find like H&M or um, Zara in a thrift store. But now because people are able to purchase so many items of clothing from Shein for such a cheap price and then, I don't know, I think a lot of people view Shein clothing as kind of like a wear one, throw out afterwards, like a wear one time kind of deal that there's just like an overflowing amount going into these thrift stores. Which is really sad at the end of the day because I think that for a lot of people there is this kind of stigma about buying Shein as there should be. That kind of trickles down to secondhand Shein as well which is why these clothes just like end up going into landfills because nobody wants used Shein. Like it's already probably crumpling. Um, There's like lead in the fabric. There's just not anything good happening here. And you know, while I'm on the topic, because I did read an article about style bundles, I've been aware of style bundles for a while because this girl I know, she used to sell them on Depop and they used to sell out really, really fast. Like she was making a killing on these style bundles. But then I've noticed like over the years, a lot of people started jumping in on the style bundle trend and they've been offering their own style bundles and they can range from prices of like $40 for a bundle to like $400. I mean, if you don't know what a style bundle is, like, okay, let me just like clarify. A style bundle is a curated collection of clothing that clients can request via direct message or by a personal website if a seller is like set up like that. Um, A lot of them are marketed like on Depop or Etsy. So for every bundle, stylists who sometimes call themselves personal shoppers will work directly with clients taking inspiration from mood boards, Pinterest pages, or an aesthetic category that they submit. So what I've noticed, like a lot of like these stylists, they'll have a form that you fill out. So you write down your measurements and your uh, size and the kind of aesthetic that you're trying to look for. So you're like, oh, I really want something um, cottagecore. And so you'll have that. And then also like sometimes they'll have a box for like you to request things that you definitely don't want. And using these forms, these stylists will create an outfit or multiple outfits for you depending on what their bundle is and how much it costs. So the website I was reading this article on was the Washington Post and the article is written by Sofia Andrade and she said, they're democratizing a domain once reserved for the rich. Which I guess is kind of true because personal styling and personal shopping is something that like has been reserved for the domain of the rich. Okay, and then in the article, they also interview Charlotte Shiasin, Shiasin, who is someone who has this business. And she said, where I live, there's seven thrift stores and I'll go to each one so it's a full day experience. So part of the reason why like this process is democratized is because these sellers will usually come through thrift stores. And so that's why the bundles are like less money than if you were buying like a designer bundle. I actually haven't seen anyone offer a designer a bundle, so I don't know if that necessarily exists or if at that point you're just like going to hire a personal shopper. 
But Charlotte brings along a giant binder filled with her client's mood board sizes and preferences as well as a measuring tape when she's at the thrift store. And for her pricing scheme, she charges around $90 for a single outfit, which includes two tops, one bottom, and one accessory, to $455 for 10 outfits, which was what she calls a wardrobe revamp. And I know a lot of people like don't like the idea of paying $455 for outfits that were like found in someone's thrift store, but I don't know. I don't necessarily have an opinion on what's considered too much of an upchart. Like I don't know where the line is for that, but I do think people don't consider a lot of times the time it takes for someone to style. And also like when people initiate returns because they're not happy with their bundle like that labor is kind of a sunk cost because you've already done the labor of like looking for the clothes and styling them together and if your client is unhappy with it then you kind of just like you know have to like give them back the money and then just not gain anything for your time and effort um the styling assistant Erin Galliato, she makes an argument for why she thinks styling bundles are a good investment. She says, I really like styling bundles because not only does it take away all the work of finding the pieces, it also serves as validation. Someone else thinks this is cute. You should wear it because this cool person who has a cool Instagram put it together for you. And I can definitely see that. And also, you know, sometimes like when you buy a piece of clothing, you don't really know how you're going to style it. You just like the piece of clothing. So I think it is valuable to kind of buy an outfit together because then you at least like have an option of what to wear it with so that this item of clothing that you really love might not just sit in the closet forever until you find something that works um, to wear with it. But there are also a lot of limitations. So I've watched a good number of videos that people have made unboxing their styling bundles and I feel like reactions towards them are really varied. Like some people really love the bundle they got and some people are like, what is this? I actually think a lot of them don't have um, a return policy because now that I think about it, usually the people in these videos, if they don't like the clothing, they're kind of like, oh, well, maybe I can like dye this or I can like resell this or whatever. But the girl that I knew who first started doing these styling bundles, she did offer returns. I think probably one of the reasons why a lot of people don't like them is because Some of these people, like, they like this particular stylist or personal shopper, but they have their own sense of style. Like, they know how to find clothes that they like. And I really feel like this service is for people who have no qualms with experimentation. Like, they're just trying to see what works. Because I think if you already have, like, a very concrete style, then it's going to be really hard for someone to fully understand that just from, like, looking at your Instagram or, like, reading a form that you submitted. Even for me, like sometimes I'll have friends who are like, oh my God, like I think you would really like this. And these are people that I know in real life who see me pretty consistently. Like they know what I dress like. They know what kind of clothes I have in my wardrobe. And they'll like send me some stuff and I'm like, oh, I don't know about that. Like I don't think I would ever wear that. So I think it is really hard to nail someone else's personal style, especially if you're not going to be working with them like long term and if you're not actually going to meet up in person because I think another reason some styling bundles flop is because the purse the measurements are off or the silhouettes are not really right for the person like they're not comfortable with the kind of silhouettes that they're given because a lot of fashion trends don't really take in the fact that people's bodies are built differently and I truly believe that you can wear whatever you want um, regardless of your body shape like I've read these like little guys that tell me I'm not supposed to wear a turtleneck because I have broad shoulders which I think is really stupid because I look good in turtleneck so I think these rules um can be shifted and broken but I think that there are people who are uncomfortable with revealing certain parts of their body or They're very like conscious about creating that hourglass silhouette that these guides uh, advise people to do. So if you're a seller and you're just trying to like create a look based on what you think is like cool personally, then that's not necessarily always going to translate into being cool with the other person. Like they just might not feel comfortable wearing these like particular silhouettes. Um, And they might not know that until like the clothes arrive. So even if you have like preferences – I don't know, someone might never have worn like a corset, but then 
they're not like opposed to it. So they don't say like, oh, I don't want to wear a corset. And then when they actually get one, corsets are really hard because they have to be tailored to your body to fit really well if they have boning. I mean, if you wear one of those corsets that are like with no boning and they're just, they just have like the lacing, then usually those will like fit fine. But corsets with boning, they're historically made to be personal undergarments. So unless your client can like get fitted for it, you're not going to know if it's going to fit them. It's going to be like all eyeball work, which is, you know, not always the best, especially when it comes to tight clothing. (laughs) So I don't know. I think if you're interested in ordering a styling bundle, like to keep all this in mind, and also like there's so many stylists who offer them now on Depop especially, like I would really look for someone who is more set up and has done this and has connections with specific dealers like I have some friends who sell vintage and they are connected with like specific warehouses where they can like search through or they know specific dealers who collect you know demonia shoes that they can get at a discount and then sell them in the bundle and so it works out for everyone that you get more bang for your buck because I do get the kind of disappointment that I've seen a lot of people share when they open up a bundle that they paid like $300 for and it's just like stuff like unknown untagged brands or fast fashion brands and the pieces are not particularly unique in any way so yeah I I totally get that oh my god I just realized I never talked about the Goodwill bins oh okay so my experience at the bins is that it was definitely like a whole circus in the sense that there were so many people there and I can't remember where exactly the Goodwill bins were I think I was in Queens I like I honestly can't remember but it was just like very anxiety inducing because when I had went and apparently they like don't do this anymore I don't know I guess it just depends on the location you go to or maybe even like whether you go on a weekend or a weekday or at a busy time or not but the way that the Goodwill bins work is like You can get anything that are thrown together in these giant bins. Um, They're huge. And you basically have to like scourge around them yourself along with other people. And whatever you get, it gets weighed at the end. And you pay like a dollar per pound or something like that. Something ridiculous. So if you find like a designer piece, like it costs the same as if you get a Shein piece as long as the weight is the same. So that's why people like it. But it can be a little bit intense because when I went, there were so many people and they actually put like tarp on all of the bins. There were like 10 of them and they did a countdown and they had us all stand behind a line. And then at the end of the countdown, they like took off the tarps and everyone just did a mad dash. And people were just, they had plastic bags, like trash bags that they were just shoving shit into like they weren't even looking at what they were grabbing they were just shoving as much stuff in there as possible so they could sort through it afterwards I obviously didn't do that because I was a newbie and I was like this is a lot I didn't bring a trash bag and also some of the stuff in there was kind of gross like I saw like used socks and underwear just like lying in these bins so it's definitely not for the faint hearted um, but my friend did leave with a Dior bodysuit, so it was a success for her. I don't know what the selection is like now. I don't know if like things have changed, especially with the pandemic and like microtrends and Shein becoming more and more popular. But that was like my 2019 experience. It was really hectic. I felt like I was very anxious the whole time, so I'm not going to be going back. But it is an option for some of you who are interested in getting like really low prices and who are down for the hunt. Speaking of low prices though, okay, so another, is this like just a fashion episode? I'm like looking at the articles that I've read and I'm like, okay, it looks like it is. Um, But I came across this article from the Wall Street Journal called The Era of Ultra Cheap Stuff is Under Threat. And it's talking about how in a lot of countries in Asia where um, Western companies get cheap manufacturing, they are raising their wages, woo, but that is also leading to higher costs um, in the West. So if you need more context, basically people in their 20s in China and in Vietnam and India and Malaysia, like, they are just not really interested in doing factory work. Can anyone blame them? I certainly can't. And I think this article is mostly talking about, like, 
more respectable factories, like not sweatshops, not like completely illegal behavior. It's not really clear, but that's just the gist that I got while reading the article. So anyways, people in their 20s are just not interested in doing traditional labor force. And Paul Norris, who is the British co-founder of the Vietnam Garment Factory Unavailable, which is based in Ho Chi Minh City, he said that these workers in their 20s have been routinely dropping out of his company's training program. And those who do stay often only work for just a couple of years. And the reason, according to Norris, everybody wants to be an Instagrammer or photographer or a stylist or work at a coffee shop. Okay, (laughs) what I think is an oversimplification of what's going on, I think people are becoming more aware of like what they're worth and what their time is worth. And I know a lot of boomers in particular like to talk about how millennials and Gen Z especially are not motivated to work. They're like super lazy and they keep dropping out of jobs or whatever. And I think that rather than blaming we should look at why that's the case. I mean, I only know really about the American economy, so I can't say what the cost of living is like in other countries or, you know, what job benefits are like in other countries. But in America, it is virtually impossible to afford a house now, um, especially in proximity to a major city working a regular nine-to-five job like it's just not feasible anymore it used to be feasible that's why a lot of boomers I think wax poetic about how generations are lazy now because they just like grew up in a different time like they could get a house when they were 25 they got married they could have kids whereas now I mean I, I think a lot of people are just not interested in having kids in the same way maybe because we travel more but also because kids are like really expensive and cost of living is high and it's just not reasonable anymore to have like five kids child care is also expensive both parents need to work unless one parent is making like a boatload of money which is usually not the case like on average that's not the case so yeah times are not uh, lucrative And so I'm not really surprised that people don't feel like a certain loyalty towards a company that's not paying them enough and that doesn't have a lot of benefits. There was like this one person who was interviewed in this article. His name is Nguyen Ang Thuan. He's 25 years old, Vietnamese high school graduate, and he quit his job as a mechanic at a suburban Hanoi car parts factory to work as a motorbike driver for Grab, which is like the local Uber equivalent. And he has said that his wage is lower doing this driving job, but he said the change was still worth it because he's his own boss. And he was talking about how the environment at the factory was just not good for his mental health. He said, my supervisors often made very unpleasant remarks, which stressed me out. And he was there for three years. He said factory work would tempt him again only if his old monthly salary of $400 doubled. On top of that, uh, young people in Asia are having fewer children than their parents did and at later ages, which means they're under less pressure to earn a steady income in their 20s. I think that's honestly why a lot of boomers stuck with their jobs for a long time. I think, one, because also moving around and traveling was rarer. I think nowadays, like with remote work, people are just like constantly moving, constantly shifting around. But also like I don't know, they just like got married younger, they had kids younger. And when you have all these people that, (laughs) these people, all these mouths to feed and mortgage to pay, like you crave something more steady and that's why you just like stay at the same job. To get at Norris's point, I'm like, yeah, sure. I mean, people do want to work for themselves now, I think, because they've realized that like working for a company is kind of silly if that company is not going to be giving you a lot of benefits because that's like the main idea of working for a company is if, you know, they can contribute to your 401k, which is like your retirement fund for anyone who is not in the US, um, and that they can give you health care. Or give you a pension plan, which apparently is, like, really difficult now. Apparently, like, no companies offer pension plans. If you don't know what a pension plan is, it's just, like, once you retire, you're given a certain amount of money per year. Like, you're given a percentage of your salary for the rest of your life post-retirement as, like, a thank you from the company for all the years that you've worked with them. Which, in history, has been really important for people because social security in America is really bad. Um, And social security payments 
are like these monthly payments from the government that they give to retirees. And it's just like, it's really low. And if you live in a major city, especially, it's just not enough to pay your rent or your mortgage. So anyway, as a result of all this, of all this worker dissatisfaction, Asian factories have had to increase wages and adopt these different new strategies to retain workers. So some of these strategies include improving cafeteria fare and uh, building kindergartens for workers' children. Which, I'm like, those are not that uh, difficult to implement. I feel like that is something that is almost bare minimum to like have like okay food to eat during lunch and to provide childcare for kids who can't stay home alone while their parents are at work, working like 12 hours a day. This one company, Maxport Limited Vietnam, they are a Nike supplier and they were founded in 1995. They now offer in their factory sunlight. So they built these windows. So sunlight now beams through windows. And they also planted thousands of plants and trees. And they've also ramped up training for young workers to advance and become supervisors. Again, I'm like, I can't believe that we just like didn't want to offer people sunlight and trees. But even with these changes, the company is still struggling to attract young people. Around 90% of Maxport's workers are 30 years old or older. In Malaysia, factories are dropping requirements to wear uniforms, which young workers hate and are also redesigning facilities. This one person who is the president of the Malaysian Employers Federation, Syed Hussein Syed Husman, He said, we are trying to make our factories a little bit more sexy, open up the partitions, give it more glass structure, give it more light, give it some nice music, create a kind of Apple environment. And then, yeah, wages are increasing. So in Vietnam, factory wages have more than doubled since 2011. And that is three times the rate of increase in the U.S., according to data from the United Nations International Labor Organization. And in China, factory wages rose 122% from 2012 to 2021, which is the latest period for which the U.N. data is available. As a result, costs are uh, predicted to be going up because, of course, companies don't want to make less money than they're currently making by distributing their revenue more evenly among workers, so consumers are going to have to pay for that. For example, the toy and game maker Hasbro said this year that labor shortages in Vietnam and China have pushed up costs. Barbie's maker Mattel, which has a large production base in Asia, also is grappling with higher labor costs. Both companies have raised prices for their products. Nike, which also makes most of its shoes in Asia, flagged in June that their product costs are going up because of high labor expenses. So yeah, if you notice some high prices, the changes in Asian factory infrastructure might be a reason why. Um, But yeah, I think the takeaway here is not to blame any of these factories for wanting to, or I should say being pressured to change their conditions to be more appealing to workers because workers deserve to make a livable wage and they also deserve to uh, work in sunlight in a, a positive environment. They deserve to not dread having to go to work. What is the problem here is corporate greed as always because I swear probably these executives and shareholders, they could take a bit of a pay cut to pay their workers more without raising costs for consumers, but they're not going to because they know they can get away with it and people are going to keep buying their products at whatever the cost that they uh, shift it to. So yeah, I don't know. Uh, This is also something that I've talked about with some people about uh, the AMPTP strikes. So like the writer strike and the actor's strike and... I feel like if they do end up getting what they want, which I hope is the case, Netflix and these streaming services, they're just going to up the prices of their subscriptions because they uh, don't want to have to like share their revenue with writers and actors. They're just going to have consumers fill in those blanks for them. So yeah. Last thing I want to talk about is opinion fatigue. So this is a great article that I read. It was on Bustle. It's called Opinion Fatigue is Setting In for Twitter, TikTok, and Instagram Creators. So what opinion fatigue means is that people are just getting tired of hot takes. They're tired of posting hot takes and... Uh, People are just shifting the way that they use the internet. And I thought this was interesting because it's something I've noticed within myself as well. But I didn't realize it was actually like affecting scores of people and how they use social media and the internet. 
So a hot take, by the way, (laughs) it's like an opinion that someone usually posts on the internet that is controversial in some way. And usually like a hot take is considered like a positive thing. Like it's like a positive controversial take, like a take that someone is brave for saying. In opposition, a cold take, which is like a less popular term, it's like kind of used derogatory, like a controversial take that's negative. Like as in you shouldn't have said this, this is not a take worth sharing and you're wrong. Um, But in the article, it kind of talks about first why we post hot takes on the internet to begin with. And this senior research scientist at Wellesley Wellesley Centers for Women and the director of Youth Media and Wellbeing Research Lab, Linda Charmaraman, uh, she said, with the internet, people feel like they finally have a voice. People want to feel validated. Do you agree with me? What do you think? And just trying to keep up that engagement is a game in itself. And yeah, this was kind of like a slow build of the hot take, right? So in the early 2010s, Reddit built a whole culture around these kinds of conversations. They had memes like, am I the only one around here? And the subreddit, unpopular opinion, which cropped up as forums for users to share and debate some of their most controversial thoughts. But these thoughts were anonymous because of the nature of like how Reddit works. With social media becoming more public and people putting their names to posts, opinion sharing got a bit more complicated because hot takes were now rewarded with more than just attention. Like if you posted enough viral hot takes, you could just grow a whole business, which I mean, I feel like I've kind of done that a little bit. Like I I mean, I built my channel on a lot of fashion commentary, but some of my most well-performing videos are like movie reviews or just like talking about cultural phenomena which I'll like give my own opinions on and I think those videos tend to do well because people have opinions as well and so they'll like type their opinions in the comments and that like boosts the engagement of my video. In turn I feel like with my haters, my hater community, (laughs) I like gained a reputation of being really um, argumentative and just like not being happy with anything when that's not true because they have a lot of positive videos they just don't get the same kind of attention and engagement so people who are not subscribed to me will most likely be recommended videos where I'm being more antagonistic and not see the videos where I'm pretty neutral or positive anyways like even if you do build like a business out of it it can be pretty tolling mentally so there's this journalist Lauren Duca and she wrote a viral 2016 op-ed for Teen Vogue called Donald Trump is gaslighting America and afterwards she became a prominent figure for her political commentary and she also authored this book how to start a revolution young people in the future of politics despite her success She was catapulted into a public position she was not suited for, like, according to herself. Like, these are things that she has said she was uncomfortable with. And also, like, the internet backlash has led to more direct criticisms um, that affect her more personally. For example, in 2019, her students of this class that she taught, they submitted a formal complaint about her. So... It wasn't really surprising that in 2020, she announced that she was taking an indefinite break from social media. I also, you know, think that another unfortunate downside with hot takes is that if your take is too controversial that attacks like a person, then you have to deal with like the fandom coming after you, which can also lead to doxing. I remember there was this one guy who wrote something vaguely critical about Selena Gomez like I don't even remember what the tweet was but at the end of the day like all these Selena Gomez fans piled up on him for speaking his opinion and they doxed his restaurant his family restaurant because they found out where he worked but it was his family restaurant and they just like sent so many downvoting reviews that plummeted the restaurant's uh score on Google reviews and I think in the end, I don't know if he was able to successfully report it because I didn't follow up too much, but I do know that people were starting to like write positive reviews to try to like outweigh the negative ones. But doing stuff like that, I'm like, that is crazy. Like you're taking this person's family's business because you don't agree with what they said about some random celebrity. Like it's never that deep. But because of that, I've just been also more hesitant about sharing my opinion about people specifically unless 
they are like not good people like if they've like been wrapped up in some kind of like sex abuse crime or you know like there's hard facts to say why they are not a good person I try to withhold an opinion as my platform gets bigger because one I don't want to be doxxed and also two I do feel like lately I just think we should have more benefit of the doubt for people like the way someone appears online or in the press can be so different from who they are as a person and you just don't really know anyone until you actually like know them and so I feel like sometimes we can be overly judgmental about people we've never had even a conversation with and it just like doesn't feel fair in that sense Um, because I have met people who I thought I didn't like based on their social media presence or based on just like how I see them interacting online and when I met them in person, I was like, actually, you're like really nice and you're like so different. And the kind of person you are on the internet is more of like a persona or it's just like the way that I was like looking at your content and who you are just like wasn't giving you any kind of grace. So I'm I'm trying to be better at that. And so that's why I try not to like speak on any kind of relationship, celebrity drama or anything that comes up on my feed. I feel like I don't need to necessarily give a take. I think that's something that we also should consider. Like we don't have to give a take on everything. I think we can. Like, I I mean, you're definitely entitled to, to give a take on whatever you want. But I think for like mental health reasons, sometimes I'll like post something or I'll, I'll write out a post on Twitter. And then I just like think about it for like 30 minutes or, you know, I like, I'll leave it alone. Like I won't actually post it. I'll just like exit out and then I think about it I'm like why did I actually feel the need to share that and it's not just necessarily an opinion on something but it could just be something like about my day where I'm like why did actually I think this was something worth interacting with and I think it's because nowadays and especially with Twitter and and TikTok too with people just always constantly sharing what's on their mind it feels uncomfortable to be alone with your experience and alone with your thought like you just feel the need to chase that validation it's kind of like an addiction in a way And I'm not saying that you necessarily have to keep all thoughts to yourself. Like, obviously, I'm speaking my thoughts right now on my podcast. And I'm always speaking my thoughts on YouTube and stuff like that. It's just choosing what to speak on and whether or not you need to speak on everything. Because, yeah, again, it's kind of like I don't need to share what I'm eating for breakfast today. Like, I don't need to share every thought I had in the shower. I just – I don't need to. Um, There are some things that I think are worth speaking on. I think there's some things that I'm – I feel like are worth like having a discussion on, but not everything. And then also in this article, they were talking about how opinion fatigue seems to be more common in left-leaning spaces. And the author of this article, Kate Lindsay, she writes, this could be because backlash and opinion from people you disagree with is expected, whereas a negative response from people whose opinions you respect can feel more damning. And the left is more prone, publicly at least, to disagreements within its own ranks. Some of these disagreements are due to what TikTok content creator Michelle Skidelsky refers to as whataboutism. So in the video where she's talking about this in the TikTok, Michelle says that she could post a video recommending a recipe with cheese and then be accused by a commenter of excluding vegans. She said in the video, I can make a video on the most mundane subject and I'm bound to be accused of some kind of bigotry. It reminds me of that like, post on Twitter where someone was like the Twitter experience is like posting I love pancakes and then someone being like why do you hate waffles (laughs) and it is really so true and then for Kate's article Michelle talked to her in a zoom interview and said that she ends up abandoning about half the things she thinks about posting and she explains it's not even because I think it's wrong or I'm like okay I could see how that would be a sensitive issue I just don't even want to deal with what would come after Yeah, I think the way that people engage on Twitter and TikTok tends to be really incendiary because people are just fired up all the time on those platforms. And I honestly think it's because there are so many opinions and hot takes that people find themselves disagreeing with that they're just like upset. (laughs) Like they're like moving in a perpetual state of like disgruntlement that leads to them reading bad faith interpretations from people who are you know not necessarily the cause of that disgruntlement but just like being in the environment in which they're like already upset in you know when you just like are having a bad day and every single thing just like keeps getting worse 
I feel like sometimes when we're in that state of mind, it's not because everything around us is actually like getting more fucked up. It's because we're interpreting everything through a negative filter where, you know, something that could have been mundane or have like a positive interpretation, we're just like, nope, that barista who didn't pronounce my name correctly was, you know, inciting a targeted campaign against me, (laughs) harassment campaign against me. You know what I mean? Like sometimes... It, it's just like the day and it's not necessarily like the stimuli, but because we're having a bad day, the stimuli is interpreted negatively. And then the final thing that they talk about in the article is like the idea of like digging up tweets from people and how the internet doesn't understand that people like can change over time. So Kate quotes the writer and director Allegria Adedigi. The internet expects this sort of personality permanence where you have to be the same person now and forevermore. And Kate analyzes Twitter for this and says that like when you dig up an old tweet, like it still looks the same as a tweet that was posted yesterday. Like the timestamp will just be different. And so it's difficult for people to conceptualize the passing of time and opinion changes that may have occurred during that passage of time. I'm not saying people should get like a free pass for being like racist or whatever. Um, Like I think those things are definitely topics to hold people accountable to. But I think it's kind of silly to expect that just because someone made a tweet like in 2015 that it holds true today, eight years later, because you just get new information. There are some things that I've probably said in my videos that I probably don't agree with anymore. Um, But I actively try not to rewatch any of my old videos because it just gives me like the ick to see I don't know, old footage of myself. It honestly gives me the ick to see footage of myself from yesterday. So I'm not the same girl. Like, I don't know her. I don't know anything about her. Um, I'm a new person. I'm a new woman. So yeah, I purposely like don't look at old footage, but I'm sure like my opinion has changed on certain things because that just like is part of life. That's how people develop new opinions. That's how people learn and grow. And I know that we all know that we all do this like on our own journeys. I just like wish that some people on the internet could project that understanding onto other people. Anyways, like as I've said, I have tried to distance myself from Twitter more because I really don't like the X rebrand. And I feel like the more changes Elon makes, the more I'm aware that there's just like so many right wing conspiracists on Twitter. And I'm like, I cannot be on here. Like this is just, this is not for me. This is not the club I subscribe to and I can't be seen here anymore. Um, So I've been trying to distance myself, but also I've just realized that there are so many things that I don't want to give an opinion on because I just don't want to deal with like the controversy that comes from people reading my interpretations as bad faith and I think even if you disagree there's like a way to disagree that's not just like you're a terrible ugly bitch and I hate you um I think there's a way to actually have constructive arguments and constructive discussions but then people tend to not do that and engage with that which makes me feel like people don't actually want discussion sometimes. They just want to insult someone and feel better about themselves. And also with Twitter and TikTok, there's like time limits. Even with YouTube, there's time limits. I'm like, I don't have enough room. I don't have (laughs) enough text. I don't have enough like, you know, time to really come up with a sentence that hits up against every argument that can be not misinterpreted at all. I'm also probably not even smart enough to come up with the the language that that would take. And I think that uh, holding everyone to that kind of standard also is going to set up for disappointment. I don't know. Like, I've definitely seen weird takes on Twitter that I don't agree with. But sometimes I'll just, like, have to look at it. I'm like, maybe I'm just thinking too deeply about this like especially if it's like a celebrity I'm like okay that's it's not that deep I, I I can just scroll on but I think also sometimes I have to really think like okay is this really what the person is trying to say or they do they just word it incorrectly and then you know even if at the end of the day I'm like no their take was bad I just wonder if it's even worth it to respond at all for my sake but also what am I achieving by responding and A lot of the times I'll notice on Twitter, people will quote tweet and they'll like try to like humiliate that person for their bad take rather than like actually 
try to educate them and obviously like it's no one's job to be an educator but I'm also like at this point you know am I trying to dunk on this person or am I trying to get them to see the error of their ways (laughs) and you know obviously like I am not a perfect person and I I've done a lot of things that would make me hypocritical (laughs) for this episode, but I am trying to like reframe, reprocess, and that's just like what I've been thinking. That's like my internal monologue, and I'd be interested to know what you all think. And at the end of the day, I think it just goes down to we need to be more offline. Though, okay, quickly, I did read this article from The Atlantic about what people did before phones, and it was kind of disappointing because the writer who I presume is older because they were talking about their own experience, they were saying like people were just bored. Like people were just desperate to fill up time. Like tasks just took really long. You know, like reading a map to try to get somewhere. Like everything just took longer. Everyone was bored and people didn't actually use their time productively like we all imagined they would. At the same time, I think that the hyper speed of the internet is rotting brains in a way that like I would rather just sit bored and stare at a wall than have to suffer through. So yeah, okay. This is the end of the episode. Thank you all so much for listening this week. I'll see you next week and I hope you have a lovely rest of your day. Thank you. Bye. If you want to be updated on the HyberPod and also be informed whenever I'm looking for uh, question answer responses, you can follow the Highbrow Instagram page. It's highbrow.pod. Highbrow is edited by Sophie Carter, music is by Olivia Martinez, and cover art is by Lindsay Mintz. Highbrow is also part of the Audioboom Network. When everyone is on the same page, getting things done at work is easy. No matter what you do or what industry you're in, how you communicate is key. Everything you type is equally important to collaboration, and Grammarly can help. Think of it as your AI writing partner, empowering you to communicate effectively and efficiently so you can make a bigger impact in the workplace. 96% of Grammarly users say it helps them craft more impactful writing. And as the gold standard of responsible AI, Grammarly is your secure AI writing partner that allows your team to make their point and move faster. By understanding your writing and context, Grammarly provides relevant, personalized suggestions. And with tone suggestions, you can navigate even the most difficult work conversations. You can also save time from spending hours editing drafts to just seconds with one click. Sign up and download Grammarly for free at Grammarly.com slash podcast. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash podcast. Easier said. Done.